You're listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today, May 8th, 2022, Pastor Rod preaches the first sermon in our Ruth, A Love Story of Redemption sermon series. Please check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to our service today, and I want to also say happy Mother's Day to all of you mums out there watching with us. Last week, we finished off our series in Acts, and if you were with us, you know that we had left the Apostle Paul in Rome in house arrest, chained to a guard, and he was there because of the hope of Israel. That's where he landed, defending himself before those Jews in Rome, saying, the reason why I'm in chains is for nothing more than the hope that all of us have as Jewish believers in God. And the reason why he was in chains is because he preached this gospel that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and as the Messiah, he was the Savior for all people, including the Gentiles. And that's where the story of Acts ended. Paul is very aware of the promise of Abraham, that God gave Abraham the promise that he would be a great nation, but that also he would be a blessing and that he would bless all the nations. And so Paul's understanding is that Jesus, as the Messiah, is the completion of that promise that was first given to Abraham, that all the Gentile people would be blessed with the same Savior that would be the Savior for Israel, would also be the Savior of the Gentile people. And the reason why I bring that up is because in today's story, we're going to be looking at a person named Ruth, a woman. And it's interesting because you don't find too many women named in the Jewish scriptures or books named after them. We have two, Ruth and Esther. And the unique thing about Ruth is that she was a Gentile woman. And not just a Gentile woman, but a woman from an enemy country called Moab. And so as we look at these pieces, it's like, wow, this is really unusual that this story would end up in the Old Testament. Now, what we believe is that this is a prime example of that the plan of God was for all people, that the salvation would be for everyone, because here we have this story of Ruth in the Old Testament. Now, Ruth is also listed in Matthew's genealogy, which probably you know of. Uh, She is listed as the great-grandmother of King David. So a very significant person because of King David, but we also know that that's the line of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. Um, so this is a story that we're going to be looking at not only this Sunday, but for the next two weeks. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Now for many who are familiar with the Bible, you might have Ruth as one of your favorite stories in the Bible, and for good reason. Not only is it just like a great story, it's a great love story. I mean... It's one of those everyone lives happily ever after kind of endings to this story. That starts out very tragic, but ends with a beautiful blessing. Who doesn't like an ending like that? Well, I know one person, his name is Rob Schaff. He doesn't think it's a taste of reality. But this is truly one of those stories where the glass slipper fits and everyone seems to end happy. What's your favorite love story? You know, there's a lot of them out there, and I think of ones like you know, Romeo and Juliet, The Princess Bride, The Count of Monte Cristo, Pride and Prejudice, and my very favorite, The Scarlet Pimpernel. So I don't know what your favorite love story is, but the story of Ruth and Boaz truly is a love story. But it's a divine love story because it's more than just their story of their love for each other. It's a story of spiritual truth. It's a story about grace and kindness, redemption and salvation. It's really God's divine acting through the human story. And it has everything to do with Jesus and the gospel. The story begins by telling us that it takes place in the life of Israel at a time period 
see I was one slide off there, at a time period in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled. You might remember that this was the time period between Joshua and King Saul. Uh, it was the time after the Israelites had come out of Egypt and into Canaan, the promised land. And, and those first number of years after Joshua living there, they were ruled by the judges for probably about a 400-year period before the monarchy started. And it's a time that's marked by a lack of faith in God. The Jewish people are really without a moral compass. They're ignoring the covenant of God. And for that, there's many devastating things that take place, including enemies that uh, overtake them or rule them and famines that come. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit, is how the book of Judges ends. And I want to point out that, you know, some versions say everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Maybe you're familiar with that phrase. That kind of characterizes the spirit of the people. And of course, when people are doing what is right in their own eyes, they're being misled. They're no longer actually following the way of God. Uh, they're doing their own thing, not God's thing. And so there's a, a cyclical pattern of behavior for the nation of Israel that they fall into, and it looks like this. Israel would serve the Lord, then they'd fall into sin and idolatry. God would then send a nation against them, and Israel would be enslaved by them. Things would get so bad that they would cry out to God, and then God would raise up a leader called a judge to rule the land, and that judge would deliver the nation of Israel. God would use them to deliver Israel, and the cycle would start all over again. The days of the judges were an uncertain time due to this lack of obedience and faith in God. And as an indicator in our story that this could be at one of those low points in the cycle, uh, we see these words in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A famine in the land is an indicator that they're living out of, the, out of step with with God and his covenant, and his promise is no longer true at this point. God had warned the Israelites to not live outside of his covenant, outside of his law, outside of his will. Because if they did, disaster would come. He would use these things like an enemy or famine to turn their hearts back to God, as was part of this pattern during this time frame. So Deuteronomy 11 puts it like this on the positive, but just think of the opposite of this. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today, to do what? To love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then I will send rain on your land in, the season, in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for the cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. So to love and obey God would mean that there would be God's provision and his abundance. But then of course the opposite is true as well. And therefore... For there to be famine in the land is an indicator of the fact that these people have not been walking with God. Our story goes on to say, So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now this might not uh, pique your interest too much at this point, but if the Jewish reader or listener was hearing that a man from Bethlehem moved to Moab, let's just say that their radar is going to go up. Moab was a sworn enemy to Israel um, and to their God. 
and had been for many, many years. In fact, if you read earlier on in Judges, you know that there was an 18-year period where a king in Moab ruled over Israel. This was the very nation that, that had not allowed Israel, when they were leaving captivity under Moses' direction at that time, would not allow them to pass through their land to go into Canaan, the promised land that God was giving to the Israelites. They made Israel walk around through the desert. This was also an, a, a nation that, um, that had begun in a very horrible fashion. Um, Lot, who was a nephew of Abraham, got drunk, slept with one of his daughters, she became pregnant, and Moab was her son. And so this nation was born out of this very horrible circumstance. Uh, the nation did evil. The nation did horrible things by worshiping this god called Chemosh, who they, well, one of the horrible things was that at certain times they would sacrifice a child. Why? To try to gain the favor of this god. I mean, this is deplorable. Deplorable in the eyes of God, and yet many of the religions around Egypt, the Canaanite religion groups, or groups that had their religion, practiced that kind of wickedness. Moab was a nation that conscripted Baal, the prophet, uh, pardon me, Balaam, the prophet, to come and prophesy against the nation of Israel when they were trying to pass through into the promised land. And eventually that nation of Moab led the men of Israel, or a certain number of them, away into sexual immorality and sinful practices. So when it says that Elimelech moved his family to Moab, for the Jewish reader, they're going, this is a huge betrayal of Elimelech's faith. It's truly a situation of the grass is greener over there, literally. Moab had rain. Moab had green fields. And it was actually something that could be seen from Israel down by the Dead Sea that looking across to the east, you could actually see this. And so Elimelech moves his family. Now, as you know, in the Bible, names have meanings that are attached to them. And there's a bit of irony in some of the meanings of these names in this story. And I want to point that out to us at this point before we begin reading the rest of the story. Bethlehem means house of bread, which is ironic because at this time, of course, there is no house of bread. There's no bread. Uh, there's a famine in Bethlehem. Secondly, Elimelech means my God is king. And yet he abandons his God to go to a foreign land, showing really a lack of faith in his own God to care for his needs. Here are some of the other names that we come across in the story eventually. Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely. But you know, at a certain point, she tries to change her name to Mara, which means bitter, because she has experienced great loss in her life. Ruth means friendship or companion or compassionate companion, this deep level of loyalty, which, of course, she displays to her mother-in-law, Naomi, in this story. Boaz means strength. It also means swiftness. And those two characteristics are going to come out in this story. And so in the Bible, often what would happen is that parents would name their child uh, for various reasons, but one of the reasons was to give the child a characteristic, a positive quality that they hoped that their child would one day embody and live out that it would define who they are. Um, but then there's other times where a child was born under suffering and sometimes the name was negative. Uh, or a child was born with certain unique features and the child was given a, maybe a bit of a funny name or an interesting name at least. Um, an example of that is when the twins Esau and Jacob were born to uh, Isaac and Rebekah. Their names were uh, Esau meaning hairy because 
He was a hairy child. And Jacob, meaning heel grabber, because when Esau, his older brother, came out first, Jacob had a hold of his heel and, and came out grasping his heel. And so the name Jacob actually means one who grabs the heel. So you have these names that are descriptive of the event of the birth. But in, in these cases, and most often, parents tried to give a positive name that encompassed a quality, pleasant, companion, my God is king, and strength. These are all qualities that they're hoping that these people will live out. So, Elimelech looks eastward, and he sees Moab, and he moves there. He moves to greener pastures, into enemy territory, which is a bad decision because it shows that he doesn't trust his own God for provision. He takes matters into his own hands. You know, I think about that and how often when maybe we don't see things going easily the way we think they should and God isn't coming through, we take matters into our own hands. And so I think we do this as well. Here's how our story goes. After some time of being in Moab, Elimelech dies. Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, this is where the second bad decision takes place in Moab, where these two sons, Malon and Kilion, marry Moabite women. And this is a bad decision because God had forbidden his people to marry outside of Israel for the main reason that when they did, they would turn away from God and worship other gods. They would worship the gods of these women from other lands. And so he had said in Deuteronomy 7, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. But our story tells us that once Elimelech had died, that these two boys married Moabite women, one named Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Wow. Like, this is like serious, tragic loss, right? Tragedy befalls tragedy for Naomi. She loses her husband. And within the course of 10 years, her two sons. She's lost it all. There's no one left to provide for her, just her two daughter-in-laws. When Naomi heard that, in Moab, when Naomi heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home to Bethlehem from their Moab. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Naomi appraises the situation, and she doesn't want to take these girls away from the opportunity that they would have to remarry. The reference to the home of your mother is a reference to the fact that you would one day be able to remarry and have a home of your own. If she had said to the home of your father, it would have been to just go back and be protected and provided for by your father. But what Naomi has in mind here is an opportunity for these women to remarry, and she doesn't see that through herself, going forward, that she's not going to have more sons that would then become their husbands. Ruth decides to go forward with Naomi. Orpah decides to turn back and go back to her family. As forceful as Naomi was to try to convince Ruth to not come with, with her, Ruth persisted in staying with her mother-in-law. 
And, and she makes this great declaration, one that I think is well known. Maybe you've heard it many times. Maybe it's one of your favorite statements in the entire Bible because it captures such a depth of loyalty and commitment and nobility on the character of Ruth. And it goes like this. But Ruth replied to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. You know, many of us know these verses so well because we love them. I mean, these are powerful words. This is, this is something at a whole other level of commitment. It's agape love. It's being lived out from a selfless, self-sacrificing kind of position. That what we see here in Ruth is that she's not going to abandon her mother-in-law. That she's not going to leave her mother-in-law to face this journey alone, but also to face the rest of her life alone with no one. No husband, no sons, no one to provide, no one to protect. What will it look like for Naomi to go back to her hometown? And Ruth cannot envision anything except her being by her mother-in-law's side. You know, this is an incredible display of character. It's uncommon, really. And that's what's going to stand out about Ruth in this story, is that her reputation will be known because people will always talk. They will always talk when it's good character, and they will always talk when it's bad character. And here we see that through this kind of commitment that Ruth gains a reputation of someone who is loyal to her mother-in-law. So the two women went on until they, be, until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women explained, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Wow. That was so, there was some serious hardship and sentiment here on Naomi's behalf. She returns to Bethlehem. Bethlehem at this time was not a significant town or important in the life of Israel. Not yet. It's too early on. David has been born. Jesus is, you know, the shepherds and all that. That's coming later on. At this point, it's just a very small and insignificant town. Maybe a, a couple or 300 people that live there in this town. And when Naomi returns home, it creates a stir. It creates a stir because after 10 years of being away, much has changed. Could this be Naomi? No husband, no children. But on top of that, the greatest change is probably her disposition of grief and loss and hardship. She probably couldn't shake that because she has felt the hand of God against her. And she probably wore that in such a way that people wondered if this truly was Naomi. The word pleasant or lovely to describe no Naomi no longer fits. It no longer defines her. So she'd rather be called bitter for God's hand is against her and made her life bitter. I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. That's her conclusion. And you know, some of you know this statement far too well. Maybe this kind of describes your life 
And it raises a lot of questions that we have about God as it did for Naomi. Just this past week, I heard of two men in their early 40s, both who died. One died of cancer. The other died of a brain aneurysm. And I was thinking about these men who left behind their wife, their wives and children in both families. And it broke my heart to think about these stories. And it makes us wonder about what kind of good can come out of a situation like this. Like, what is God's plan for those two wives? And what is God's plan for those children? Does he care? Does he know what it's going to be like for them? Well, I don't believe that we ever get satisfactory answers for these kinds of questions. We at least here in this story of Ruth learn that God does have plans and purposes that are good. Even we can't see it. And we learn from this story that even at the lowest points in our lives, it's not the end of the story. There's more to be written. And especially for the one who's willing to trust God with their life, which we're about to see in this story. Romans 8, 28 is true. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. There are no platitude answers to the pain and loss that people face in life, only an assuredness that God is good and that you can trust him. Chapter one of our story opens with the famine and ends with the barley harvest. God's blessing has come back again on the nation of Israel, on Bethlehem. And upon Naomi's return, she's about to discover his blessing in her life as well. The time of year of the barley harvest is actually right now. It's the month of May. And it usually ends at the end of May, and then they start into their wheat harvest. And so we're tracking this story over the next couple of weeks at the same time frame that it would have been taking place in the time of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi has come home. Now the story switches from a focus on Naomi to a focus on Ruth and another character called Boaz. Let's pick it up. Now Naomi had, an, had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, and the, Moabite, uh, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now there's a, first, a few things I would like to note here. First is that it is significant that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. Uh, this is going to come out in the story a little bit later, and we'll talk about that. But just know this, that um, it's a way... It's important because of the fact that it's a way in which God is going to keep Elimelech's family name alive. Second, Ruth seems to know something about the law of Moses. So obviously, um, your God will be my God is a phrase that actually captures the fact that Ruth is engaging with the covenant people and the law of Moses and an understanding of what it means to follow this God. Uh, the reason is, is that she is aware that she could go into a field and glean. This was a principle that God had placed in the law that would allow a fairness for people, a way of uh, taking care of the poor, but also a way that if the farmer was to do so, God would bless the farmer. And so it was this reciprocal nature of taking care of the poor and God's blessing for the farmers and keeping this system going. So Deuteronomy 24, 19 puts it like this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner 
the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You know, often when we think about the law of Moses, we, we just think about it from like a negative perspective where it was, it was too much, it was overwhelming, there was no way that you could actually keep it. It's a very rigorous law. But there was actually a whole other side to understanding the law, which was the way in which it governed the people well, that God had built into it um, a sense of justice and protection, and there was real wisdom there. There was a, a system of allowing a society to work well together. Uh, it guided society. And so when I was in my Bible college days in an Old Testament class, and we were looking at these Old Testament laws and starting to realize the hand of God to try to provide justice for his people, you, you saw that this was actually good. And my prof actually made a statement one day in class, and I still remember it today because at the time I was shocked. And the statement was this, he simply said, you know, I would have really have loved to live under this economy of gods that he instructed Israel as to how they should live and treat one another. Of course, I was kind of shocked because all I paid attention to was all the restrictive natures. I hadn't really paid attention to the benefits of it. Well, at any rate, the whole point is that God had in his law had a provision for the fatherless, the widow, the poor, and part of that was taking care of them so that they could have food. The third thing I want to highlight comes in verse 3, where it says this, as it turned out. You know, those words right there depict the fact that God is a God of providence. As it turned out is our human way of expressing something that is a coincidence, right? You know this. How could that be anything but the hand of God? Now, what is providence? Uh, it can be defined different ways, but providence is God working with the natural events of life to do something supernatural, to accomplish something greater. So he takes the ordinary of life and he does something with it that is extraordinary. We often say things like, I can see the hand of God in an event, right? And I think that this is important. But to be fair, there are times that we cannot see the hand of God in something. And we really wonder. And in this story, we get kind of both sides of that equation. We get part of Naomi's wondering about where is God's hand other than against me to beginning to see the hand of God that is for her. Sometimes in our assessment of thinking we see the hand of God, we are correct and sometimes we're not. And this is just part of our limitation as a human. But I think that it's important that on our faith journey that we're actually looking to God for his hand in our life and acknowledging him when he guides, when he leads, when he accomplishes, when he does things in our life and through our life that go beyond us, go beyond our attentions, our ability, um, our ability to orchestrate a situation. I think it's in those moments that we are to give glory to God. So Ruth happened to choose a field that belonged to Boaz, who happened to be a relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech, and that ultimately was that God was using this situation to accomplish his eternal purposes. That age-old illustration that I'm sure you've all heard, but I think it works so well when it comes to trying to understand how God works and operates in our lives, his providence. Um, it's that of a cross-stitch, right? Where on the one side, if you're looking at the back side of it, all you see is the loose ends, and you might be able to make out that there's a fuzzy picture there, but it's pretty fuzzy. And there's a lot of loose ends. And life kind of feels like that, right, from our vantage point. But of course, when you flip that cross stitch over, you can see the picture very clearly. 
and you realize that that's God's perspective on life. And quite frankly, we will always, in this life, live looking at the underside of the cross stitch. But on that day that we stand with God in eternity, with him, we will understand God's plans and purposes. And it will be Romans 8.28 brought to completion. On this side, we only catch a glimpse. There, we will see clearly. Here, we live by faith. There, we live by sight. So, Ruth happens to be gleaning in Boaz's field. What happens? Then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, and he greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered him back. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does this young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is a Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. Pardon me. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. This is a fantastic part of the story. Boaz comes to his field. He sees this person who is there. He begins by giving a, a greeting to his harvesters that, that kind of shows that even though maybe the time of Israel had been one of a low point where people were doing what was right in their own eyes, but, but he was truly God-centered, following God. He, he gives them this, this greeting um, that, that displays uh, that the Lord is central to his life. The Lord bless you. It wasn't just shalom, peace. No, no, no. It was a sense of specificness towards God's blessing on the harvesters that would be part of this overall picture of God's blessing towards him as well. They give the blessing back to Boaz. Boaz notices this woman. He inquires about her from the farm manager who picks up on three things about uh, Ruth. One, picks up on the fact that she is the one who has come from Bethlehem with Naomi that she asked permission to come and work in the field, and that she's a hard worker. We see that there in the story, right? And then Boaz, he turns around and he expresses his kindness towards Ruth when he kind of points out these things to Ruth. Um, oh man, I got my slides out of order. I do apologize. So the farm manager points out that she's come from Moab with Naomi. She asked to glean in the field, and she's remained here till now. Hard worker, right? Boaz, he points out to Ruth or indicates, uh, you know, don't go elsewhere. Stay here. Uh, because, you know, he's spoken to his men. This is a safe place for you to be. Work amongst the women who are working for me. That, that's a good, you know, don't work on your own and don't work near the men. She wouldn't want to anyways. But stay with the women here. And if you are thirsty, feel free to go and get a drink of water. That's 
That's kindness, right? Uh, and that's why Ruth says, as she bows before him, why have I found such favor in your eyes? I'm a nobody. I'm a foreigner. Well, what is it that Ruth knows about herself? She knows this from the culture and the times in which she's living. She is a woman living in a male-dominated world. She's a foreigner from a land of a perpetual enemy of Israel. She's a widow, which means she has no one to care for her, and she's poor. She has no standing in society. Why have I found such favor in your eyes? And you know, here's where the character of Ruth really pays off. She has done something noble that people are talking about. And as I already said, people will talk about noble character. But you know, if Ruth wasn't noble, they would talk about that as well. I think people talk. But Ruth's great loyalty to her mother-in-law has won the hearts of the people, even though she's a foreigner, and she wins the heart of Boaz as well. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people that you do not know before. He understands what it means that Ruth did all of that to stay by Naomi's side. And his heart is inclined toward her. On top of that, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. So what I see here is that Boaz is not just wanting to kind of care for just the fact that Ruth and Naomi need some food. But he's actually wanting to bolster her faith in this God. This God that she is becoming more and more acquainted with and Boaz, by his kindness, is trying to, in a sense, be a part of that plan of God, of his refuge in the nation of Israel and understand how this works. That God's plan for all people is that he would love them and care for them and Boaz wants to be a part of that plan. And so he blesses Ruth and he's kind to her, giving her protection, giving her provision, but going the extra mile. He knows, Boaz knows, that in time... This God, he is the one who redeems, he is the one who restores, he is the one who repays, he is the one who rewards. She's come to Israel to take refuge in the Lord, and Boaz is going to be a part of that. So he feeds her lunch, and then after lunch, she goes back to work. Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, then she threshed the barley that she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah, which is about 30 pounds. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw, saw how much she had gathered. Uh, Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over from lunch after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now, what does she know of the story? All she knows is that her daughter-in-law is coming home with an excessive amount of grain. Like, this is not the normal amount that you would glean in a day unless someone whose field you were gleaning in um, was kind towards you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped, he, God, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man, Boaz, is a close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers or kinsman redeemer. Now we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week, so I'll just leave that for now. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain, meaning come back again tomorrow, come back again the next day, keep gleaning here. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. 
So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. So we're looking at about a two-month period. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Like I said, this is a great story. And you can already see how the ground is being prepared for it to be a great love story, right? Um, but we'll leave it there for today. When I planned to preach on the book of Ruth, I didn't look ahead to realize that May 8th, the starting date of this sermon series, would also be Mother's Day. I just hadn't thought that part through yet. And um, on the one hand, this story just seems like not a very good Mother's Day story. And on the other hand, maybe it can be seen as a good one. It starts with despair. It starts with this incredible sense of loss, a mother who's lost her two children, right? Her two sons. And it's tragic. But we begin to see how God's redemption and his redemptive plan is for Naomi. That he's, he's giving her hope again. And we see it through the actions of Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who would not leave her side. What if Ruth had gone back like Orpah did, right? I mean, no one would have thought badly of Ruth for going back and trying to start life over again in her own home. But we would not have had this story either. And you know, there's, there's something to that. There's something about the fact that a courageous act of faith like that or an act of loyalty or love or noble character or whatever it is in that moment, God takes and God uses. And as the story unfolds, we see how God is at work. And I believe that's what happens when any of us offer ourselves to God, where we step out in faith, when we act in love, when we sacrifice, when we do something of noble character, God takes it and God uses it. And through Naomi's eyes, we begin to see that her daughter-in-law is a gift beyond all gifts. That, that, that Ruth is a treasure and that Ruth is loved by Naomi as much as she would have ever loved her two sons. And that this God whom Naomi claims has left her with nothing, has taken, taken everything from her, that begins to change because she begins to see this God giving back. So there's, there's hope again in Naomi because she's returned home. Do you know that the word there for returned is the same word for repent? And you know, maybe it was an error of decision to go to that land of Moab, but Naomi has returned. And in her returning, she is now beginning to see the hand of God in her life. She is beginning to be restored. And she makes this comment about God who has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And Ruth the Gentile, the Moabitess, is the key to God's unfolding kindness, his hesed love, his unfaithfulness, or his faithfulness to Israel, his faithfulness to a people, his faithfulness to a person. That's God's love that is going to be displayed through the action of Ruth. This story is a love story, but it's a love story of redemption. It involves God's redemption of all humans through the descendants of Ruth. The chapter ends with this incredible statement about Ruth, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And it's incredible because it captures that same love that God has toward us as individuals. That's the love that Ruth is showing towards her mother, Naomi. So I trust that as we go into this story, and you might want to go ahead and read the last two chapters, we're going to be looking, that, looking at that over the next couple of weeks. But may God be your strength as you realize that he is active in your life today as you live out your life for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing story. And I pray that our eyes would be open to seeing the relevance of it in our own lives because you are the God today who is involved in our lives just like you were involved in Ruth and Naomi's life back then. 
So, Father God, guide us as we walk in your way, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, and you have a fantastic week, and we hope to see you back here next Sunday. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.